Hi, Dave Emmer here. This is For the Record Program number 1317. Fireside rant about the Gaza war and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is being recorded on December 22nd of the year 2023. We are now into winter of 2023. Uh, we're also in a very dark uh, time of the year, very dark time of human history, which is why I'm doing uh, what I am doing. Before we get into this, uh, very quickly, the latest Flash drive current as of for the record 1310 and containing a mini library of old anti-fascist books is available. Contains all of my work printed and recorded plus all of the comments by brilliant listeners such as our contributing editor Tara Fractal. And, uh, that basically the better part of half a century's worth of work is available on a 32 gigabyte flash drive. There is a link at the top of each written for the record description and each food for thought post to click on to get that flash drive. And I get no money whatsoever from that when you consider that's my my life's work. One could, I suppose, make a reasonable case that uh, those of my most severe critics who say I'm nuts uh, have a case to be made, perhaps. Uh, also, there is a link at the top again of each written for the record description and each food for thought post that will enable you to subscribe to the podcast that is being made of for the record by sister station WFNU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program and in our smartphone dominated landscape that is increasingly the case, then uh, WFNU is doing just that. They are podcasting for the record, that is. Also, please do check the website, uh, spitfirelist.com, on a regular basis for the very important, incisive comments that are being made by Parafractal, our brilliant contributing editor. Now, uh, this program is only the uh, second one that I've recorded since October 13th. Had a uh, very painful and inconvenient, albeit non-life-threatening injury that uh, kept me from recording, kind of you know, sleeping, basically. But I'm very much on the mandle, ragged around the, the edges. But uh, that's why uh, you haven't heard any programs. And uh, the, the there is no subject that I like talking about less than the Israeli-Palestinian issue, generally speaking. I get it from both sides. Uh, that <laughs> has been the case here. And uh, while I don't take what the critics say personally, at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm human. And, uh, you know, just being uh, a human piñata for a bunch of naysayers is uh, pointless. And... Uh, after this program, I am not planning on uh, covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict again unless something really dramatic happens. And, you know, who knows? <laughs> Maybe it is, uh, for all the world, it's looking like a wider Mideast war is in store. Let's hope not, but uh, maybe that is exactly what uh, 
Biden and perhaps some other leaders in the West want in order to get uh, elected. Uh, I would note that uh, now, even though Netanyahu personally is under fire in Israel, he has a national unity government and Israel has shifted dramatically to the right. There was an article in the New York Times about that, and I'll, I'll put a link in the written description for this program. But uh, again, I generally do not like talking about this subject, and following this program, I am not going to talk about it uh, if uh, <laughs> unless something really dramatic happens. Uh, to make a very, very long story very, very short, uh, there is fascism at the core of both sides, and uh, neither side will admit that, and both sides, are, both arguments are deeply flawed. No one will admit that, and uh, it is... Uh, you know, it's like, well, who, you started it, no, you started it, you started it, and it is just a, a really depressing exercise in darkness, and the the human destruction that is going on in Gaza is not doing, I mean, if Israel thinks that's going to benefit them, long term it will not, and it isn't benefiting Joe Biden either. Uh, there also has been... Uh, Apparently a fairly intense effort by uh, wealthy uh, Jewish alumni or at least uh, Israel's, Israeli sympathetic alumni to uh, shut down criticism of Israel or support for uh, the Palestinians on campus. Uh, some students who are pro-Palestinian have said they feel embattled or censored. That, too, in the end, is not going to work uh, to the benefit of Israel or Jews. That is going to spawn anti-Semitism. That is going to spawn uh, anti-Israeli sentiment. And the upshot of this whole bloody mess, and a bloody mess it most assuredly is, is it is going to rehab Hitler. Uh, very slowly, people are going to say, you know, well, Hitler did go too far, but you know, he was just trying to save Germany from the Jews. And look what happened to America, look what Israel became. You know, and then they'll be thinking, well, maybe he wasn't really that bad. And that is uh, that is the uh, scenario in Serpent's Walk, where gradually, very slowly, uh, the Third Reich is rehab. Uh one of the many things I dislike about talking about this subject is that some of the most important historical elements in the development of this, and this is really a conflict that goes back a hundred years. To understand this, you have to understand the politics of empire in the early 20th century. You have to understand World War One, the Ottoman Empire, and, and Americans know nothing about that. And indeed, some of the most important uh, aspects of the political and historical development of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, are essentially unknown. One of the aspects of it, and this goes directly into the uh, political milieu, my favorite word, and cachet of Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, certainly uh, Palestinians were ethnically cleansed. A large percentage of them will never know exactly how many actually left voluntarily because the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajamin al-Husseini, the first leader of the Palestinian National Movement, held the rank of Major General in the Waffen SS. But most of them were ethnically cleansed. However, what 
gets almost no publicity and which is really something that is fundamental for understanding the political uh, landscape of what's going on in the Middle East is that in the succeeding decade, Jews were ethnically cleansed from other Arab countries and the number of Jews who were ethnically cleansed is roughly half as many, half again as many as the number of Palestinians who were ethnically cleansed at the end of the 1948 war. Uh, some of them settled in the U.S., some of them settled elsewhere. A nice chunk of them settled in Israel, and they are anti-Arab as hell. They are really right-wing. And one of the historical ironies of that, they are a major portion of Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, base of political support and electoral support. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is the heir to one of the really, I would say, two of the most important, two of the most important fascist elements in the Zionist movement uh, do not uh, get much publicity, but they are both present uh, in the uh, landscape, so to speak, of Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, we're going to look at the possibility that he may very well be a Borman Jew, or at least for the, talking, uh, at least fronting for those. Uh, recall briefly, as discussed in a number of shows, I guess the first one was Miscellaneous Archive Show N30 from 1983, and uh, the one of the fascist elements in the Zionist movement, and Zionists generally do not like to talk about this guy being fascist, and that is a guy named Ben Zion, and then that excuse me, it was, uh, um, oh, uh, gosh, I'm, uh, uh, Vladimir Yabotinsky, I was about to, I was confusing his name with Ben Zion Netanyahu. He was, uh, Yabotinsky's personal secretary and a pallbearer at his funeral. He also was the father and political mentor of Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, we'll call that Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, the, the Beitar, took military training with Mussolini's naval cadets. They were reviewed by Il Duce himself. They collected scrap metal to support the Italian war effort after the invasion of Ethiopia. And uh, the uh, Yabapinski wrote a letter in the Beosianistica, the Italian Zionist uh, publication, that indicated this was more than just a, an alliance of convenience or realpolitik, but this was actually an alliance of ideology. And among the many things, and there are plenty of people who don't think uh, Yabotinsky would be classified as a fascist, I do. Uh, the support for uh, Mussolini, for one thing. Beyond that, uh, Yabotinsky did give lip service. He said that uh, a Zionist state should have alternating uh, Arab and uh, Jewish presidents. But he didn't feel that workers should be allowed to strike. That sounds rather corporatist to me. And beyond that, he was working out an alliance with a Ukrainian pogromist named Semyon Petlyura, who, along with uh, uh, Stefan Bondera, Roman Shukhevich, uh Mr. Konolevitz, uh, are some of the most brutal of the Ukrainian fascists who are, uh, whose heirs are the uh, U.S. allies in Ukraine today. And, uh, uh, well, Petlyura's, his, his, uh, uh, crimes against the Jews in Ukraine were so egregious that, uh, a, 
Jew in Paris whose family had been massacred by Petliura's troops assassinated Petliura, and the judge acquitted him, saying that it was certainly understandable why he would do that. Uh, Paris in the mid-1920s wasn't a real hotbed of uh, pro-Jewish sentiment, so that will uh, give you some indication. But one of the things about Yabotinsky that is ironic, considering that Netanyahu is his heir, is that Yabotinsky considered Jews of Middle Eastern, Eastern extraction to be inferior to Jews of European extraction. And yet it is those Jews of Middle Eastern extraction who were ethnically cleansed largely from the Arab nations and settled in Israel who are a core element, a fundamental element of Netanyahu's base. But you never... Never hear about the fact that uh, the number of Jews who were ethnically cleansed from the Arab countries was half again the number of Arabs who were ethnically cleansed at the end of the 48 war. Uh, although that took place over 30 years, just doesn't enter into the discussion at all. And it's fundamental for understanding the dynamic, because they are right-wing as hell and they hate Arabs. And it's really fundamental to understand why. To really understand matters political, you have to follow the money. And we're going to do a little bit of that right now. Uh, one of the interesting things about Netanyahu, and uh, I, I personally suspect that this war was allowed to deliberately take place. Uh, there were abundant warnings. Israeli intelligence was warned. The Egyptian uh, intelligence warned uh, Israel. Freelance photographers were warning the CIA. I don't know if they warned them, but they were certainly aware that they probably warned them. And uh, it's inconceivable. The Israelis simply didn't believe this was possible. Uh, although I'm not going to read it in this program. Uh, last Sunday... And that would have been the 17th of December. There was a big article in the Western print edition of the New York Times beginning on the front page and <clears throat> continuing for two pages inside that talked about Operation Harpoon, which was a Mossad operation to interdict the Hamas money machine. And it was shut down by Benjamin Netanyahu without explanation. And uh, one of the things that they were developing back in 2016 was that Hamas was planning a massive attack and to take hostages, which is exactly what they did. Um, I don't believe the official version that, that Israel was caught napping. That uh, Israeli intelligence is quite good, and that border is the most surveilled place in the world. And I'm not a subscriber to the whoopsie-daisy theory of history. And whoops, it broke. I suspect that uh, this was allowed to, deliberately allowed to happen. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is there was short-selling on the Israeli stock market in the run-up to the October 7th attacks. Uh, just like on November 22nd, 1963, there was massive short-selling on the commodities market and the New York Stock Exchange. There was also massive short-selling uh, on the New York Stock Exchange and the Commodity Exchange on September 11th, 2001. And uh, they're often, the October 7th attacks have often been described as Israel's 9-11. Again, it remains to be seen what becomes of this, but I, 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 I've spoken about being extremely pessimistic. Well, I'm even more pessimistic than I was last year. I just, uh, I don't see how this is going to end 
without uh, something really horrible happening. And uh, again, if Israel and or its supporters think that the footage coming out of Gaza, those poor people being blasted with these gigantic munitions and hospitals uh, being ruined and babies dying, I mean, it, it, that is not going to benefit Israel. It is not going to benefit Jews. It is going to lead to anti-Israeli sentiment, and it is going to produce anti-Semitism. It's not going to work at all. But one of the things about Netanyahu, he was under fire for corruption, and one of the things he was under fire for was having people in his uh, personal retinue uh, doing favors for Peason Krupp Marine Systems. Uh, it later was uh, sold to a uh, another company in the Middle East. But uh, Peason Krupp Marine Systems is part of the uh, massive Peason Krupp Industrial Empire, a key element of the Borman Network. Again, the element that I think will prove to be the decisive element in human affairs on this planet. I believe that the future is going to be theirs in time. Anyway, uh, talking about Netanyahu and Peason Krupp Marine Systems, this is from the New York Times of February 8th of 2017. Submarine case is haunting Netanyahu at a critical time by Isabel Kirchner, K-E-R-S-H-N-E-R. Under the swirl of police investigations and ethics probes enveloping Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel and his inner circle, a budding scandal over contracts for new submarines and other warships appears to be gaining momentum as another potential threat to his political future. For weeks, the police have been carrying out an inquiry into the circumstances surrounding Israeli contact contracts with a German shipbuilding company for the purchase of submarines and new missile ships that Mr. Netanyahu championed. His personal lawyer, David Shimron, capital S-H-I-N-R-O-N, also represents the Israeli agent for the company, which has led to accusations of a conflict of interest in contracts that involve billions of dollars of businesses and the shape of Israel's defense industry. Moshe Yabon, couple Y-A-L-O-N, who Mr. Netanyahu ousted as defense minister last year and who was against adding the new submarines, is reported to have recently given testimony. Initially, Israel's Channel 10 television reported a personal link between the German shipbuilding company Peace and Quote Marine Systems and Mr. Netanyahu through his personal lawyer, Mr. Shimon. Soon came more reports of the seemingly strange circumstances surrounding Israeli procurement of other warships. There was a sudden cancellation in 2014 of an international bidding process for the construction of four missile corvettes in favor of the same German shipyard. The ships are meant to protect Israel's natural gas rigs in the Mediterranean against threats particularly from Hezbollah, the Lebanese militant organization. In another twist, the firm subcontracted by Peace and Quote Marine Systems to build the four missile boats for Israel is controlled by Privinvest, a holding company registered in Beirut, Lebanon, technically an enemy of Israel's. The subcontractor, German Naval Yards Kiel, is listed on Privinvest's website as a member of its major international shipbuilding group, which has a presence in 40 countries. 
Describe, skipping down, describing the decision-making process in a detailed timeline, the office attributed the decision to the foreign ministry, the defense ministry, and the Navy after the German government offered a 27.5% discount. Mr. Shimon confirmed that he represented Mikhail Ganor, G-A-N-O-R, the Israeli agent of peace and quote marine systems, and has represented Mr. Ganor in certain aspects of an agreement, unquote, related to Mr. Ganor's consultancy for the German company. Skipping down again, Mr. Marguerite, a member of the Parliamentary Committee that approves budgets for military acquisitions, was a technology entrepreneur before he entered politics. Quote, I am used to hearing about big deals, unquote, he said in a recent interview in his office at the Knesset. I developed an ear for listening for when things add up and when they didn't, unquote. He said the ship, he said the shipping deal sounded very fishy, unquote, so he traveled to Germany in December to do what he called some due diligence, unquote. On his return, he sent a letter to the Attorney General. In it, he, de- he detailed the Lebanese connection to the contract. And they asserted that another Privinvest Group member, Abu Dhabi Moore, had changed its name to German Naval Yards Kiel in 2015, while the deal with Israel was being formulated under pressure from three prominent Israelis who wanted to obscure the company's Arab ownership. And uh, one of the many things that's coming out now hasn't received a lot of publicity, but uh, actually uh, Israel was sending many, many millions of dollars, maybe even billions, to uh, Hamas to Qatar, which is uh, a home for uh, Muslim Brotherhood. But uh, again, note the uh, cozy relationship of uh, Netanyahu with Peace and Quirk Marine Systems. Is Netanyahu, a Mormon Jew, in addition to being the heir to the Beitar? And again, if, if uh, for people that think that uh, the Yabotinsky dalliance, of, not because it was more than dalliance, alliance of Mussolini, was an isolated, uh, it was a one-off. Uh, in the late 1990s, the Likud party sent a representative, Udi Cohen, to the National Congress of the Alianza Nazionale of Gianfranco Fini, the Italian fascist party of Italy. The, the uh, GOP of the U.S. also sent a representative as well. So this is not something that is uh, long ago and far away. And again, as uh, I've said so often, for most of my life that I've spoken, and I'm an old guy now, I've been a supporter of Israel. That is no longer the case. It uh, uh, doesn't really make me so what if I support Israel or don't. I mean, <laughs> who am I? I mean, if I were, uh, you know, the Fortune 500, uh, that would that would maybe matter. But uh, I most assuredly am not. So, you know, who the F frankly cares whether I support Israel or not. But the fact of the matter is, I don't. Uh, haven't for the last 10 or 15 years. I don't support the Palestinians either. There must, there must be a Palestinian homeland or it's going to be the end of the world. But uh, with regard to what's going on there now, you have both sides that are wrong in the, in the arguments. And neither side is going to take stock of the real history. Neither stock is, uh, side is going to take stock of the fascist elements in their midst. And that's how it goes. Also from uh, the uh, from uh, that same time period, Times of Israel uh, of May sixth of twenty sixteen by Aviv Sperman, S T E R M A N, a Holocaust Remembrance Day to remember. Quote: 
If there is something that frightens me in the memory of the Holocaust, it is identifying horrifying processes that occurred in Europe 70, 80, and 90 years ago and finding evidence of their existence here in our midst today in 2016. IDF Deputy Chief of Staff Major General Yair Golan said, uh, again, you can't call him a uh, self-hating Jew. Uh, another one, uh, this from the Christian Science Monitor, it's a Reuters story from May 23rd to 2016 by Luke Baker. Uh, a, it's a Reuters story, as I said, is fascism rising in Israel? Former Prime Minister Ehud Barak warns of the seeds of fascism, unquote. Moshe Ahrens, who served as Defense Minister three times, sees it as a turning point in Israeli politics and expects it to cause a, quote, political earthquake, unquote. The past five days have produced tumult in Israeli politics since Conservative Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu unexpectedly turned his back on the deal to bring the center-left into his coalition and instead joined hands with the far-right nationalist Avigdor Lieberman, one of his most virulent critics. The decision to jettison Yalon in favor of Lieberman was all too much for Ronnie Daniel, B-A-N-I-E-L, a veteran military affairs commentator on Channel 2. I cannot urge my children to stay here because it is a place that is not nice to be in, unquote, he said in his monologue, going on to name a number of far-right politicians. Quote, what has happened is a hostile takeover of the Israeli government by dangerous elements, unquote. Ehud Barak, Israel's most decorated soldier and a former defense minister following his spell as head of government, told 10TV. Israel has been, quote, infected by the seeds of fascism, unquote, he said, adding that it should be, quote, a red light for all of us regarding what's going on in the government. And, uh, it should come as no great surprise that this shift to the right, uh, this shift toward fascism, uh, is taking place amidst a concentration of economic wealth or economic ownership. Uh, reading now from the New York Times of March 16th of 2015, this is a column by Paul Krugman, Israel's Gilded Age, skipping down. Since then, however, Israel has experienced a dramatic widening of income disparities. Key measures of inequality have soared. Israel is now right up there with America as one of the most unequal societies in the advanced world. And Israel's experience shows that this matters, that extreme inequality has a corrosive effect on social and political life. Consider what has happened at either end of the spectrum, the growth in poverty on one side and extreme wealth on the other. According to Luxembourg's income study data, the share of Israel's population living on less than half the country's median income, a widely accepted definition of relative poverty, more than doubled to 20.5% from 10.2% between 1992 and 2010. The share of children in poverty almost quadrupled to 27.4% from 7.8%. Both numbers are the worst in the advanced world by a large margin. And when it comes to children in particular, relative poverty is the right concept. Families that live on much lower incomes than those of their fellow citizens will, in important ways, be alienated from the society around them, unable to participate fully in the life of the nation. Children growing up in such families will surely be placed at a permanent 
disadvantage. At the other end, while the available data puzzlingly don't show an especially large share of income going to the top 1%, there is an extreme concentration of wealth and power among a tiny group of people at the top. And I mean tiny. According to the Bank of Israel, roughly 20 families control companies that account for half the total value of Israel's stock market. One more pun. Roughly 20 families control companies that account for half the total value of Israel's stock market. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. The nature of that control is convoluted and obscure, working through, quote, pyramids, unquote, in which a family controls a firm that in turn controls other firms and so on. Skipping down. Meanwhile, Israel's oligarchs owe their position not to innovation and entrepreneurship, but to their family's success in gaining control of businesses that the government privatized in the 1980s, and they arguably retain that position partly by having undue influence over government policy, combined with control of major banks. In short, the political economy of the promised land is now characterized by harshness at the bottom and at least soft corruption at the top. Now again, to understand matters political, follow the money. And we're going to take a look at uh, a column from the New York Times of March 11th of 2015 by Thomas Friedman. Is it Shobin Abelson's World, and this is about Shobham Abelson, the uh, casino magnate based in Las Vegas, who is not only the biggest donor to uh, Mitt Romney, I believe, and also uh, Donald, certainly the biggest donor to the Republican Party, but also to Benjamin Netanyahu. And uh, uh, skipping down in this Thomas Friedman column, When it comes to showering, we certainly know that, anyway, it talks about that. And when it comes to showering that cash on Republican presidential hopefuls and right-wing PACs trying to defeat President Obama, reportedly $150 million in 2012, and on keeping Netanyahu and his Likud party in office, no single billionaire donor is more influential than Sheldon. No matter what his agenda, it is troubling that one man with a willingness and ability to give away giant sums can now tilt Israeli and American politics his way at the same time. Israel has much stricter laws on individuals donating to political campaigns, so Adelson got around that in 2007 by founding a free giveaway newspaper in Israel, Israel Hayom, capital H-A-Y-O-M, whose sole purpose is to back Netanyahu, attack his enemies in politics and the media, and enforce a right, a far-right political agenda to prevent any Israeli territorial compromise on the West Bank, which in time could undermine Israel as a Jewish democracy. By the way, that was something that uh, David Ben-Gurion said. One of the things, if I were a Palestinian activist, pro-Palestinian activist, one of the things that I would make a point of doing uh, from a rhetorical standpoint is point out that David Ben-Gurion, arguably the most important Zionist, the man for whom uh, the Tel Aviv airport is named, he warned Israel against uh, retaining the occupied territories. He said if they do, it will mark the end of Israel as a democracy. And you know, it's certainly that... Uh, uh, might be something that uh, people could bring up, but we're going to talk about uh, Israel and democracy in just a second. 
continuing graphically attractive, Israel Hayon is now the biggest circulation daily in Israel. Precisely because it is free, it is putting a heavy stream on competitors like Yediot and Haaretz, which both charge and are not pro-Netanyahu. Abelson then bought the most important newspaper of the religious national right in Israel, Makor Rishon, R-I-S-H-O-N, the public butchering these pronunciations, long considered the main backer of Netanyahu's biggest right-wing rival, economy minister Naftali Bennett. Last March, in an interview with the Israel Army Radio after the Makor Rishon sale, Bennett said, quote, It saddens me. Israel Haron is not a newspaper. It's the mouthpiece of one person, the Prime Minister. At every junction point, every point of friction between the national interest and the interest of the Prime Minister, they chose the side of the Prime Minister, unquote. The Washington Post said that last November at a conference of the Israel-American Council, a lobbying group Abelson has funded, at a lobbying group uh, Abelson funded, he joked in a public discussion with a wealthy Israeli, why don't you and I go after the New York Times? Told it was family-owned, Abelson quipped, there was only one way to fight it. Money, unquote. At the same conference, Abelson was quoted as saying, at the same conference, Abelson was quoted as saying that Israel would not be able to survive as a democracy. So Israel won't be a democratic state, he added. So what? Unquote. Now, what we're going to do is take a look at where Abelson's money comes from. Again, you follow the money. And Abelson is, uh, by the way, who, he, he's passed away now. His widow, his wife at the time, was a quote, ex-unquote, Mossad agent. And Abelson also has uh, been uh, one of the financial backers of organizations that have been uh, basically uh, cracking down or attempting to crack down on uh, pro-Palestinian speech. And uh In the end, that is not going to work in favor of Israel. It's not going to work in favor of the Jews. It's going to sponsor, it's going to uh, foment anti-Israel sentiment. It's going to foment anti-Semitism as well. Uh, This Gaza war, boy, if people think, if people are supportive of Israel, they think this is going to benefit Israel. Yo-ho, no, it is not. No, no, no. And it's going to create not only anti-Israel sentiment, but anti-Semitism. Now, where does Sheldon Eagleson's money come from? Again, the main backer of Netanyahu, but when he was alive. An article from Mother Jones magazine from April of 2016 by Matt Isaacs, I-S-A-A-C-S. Sheldon Eagleson bets it all. Let's talk about the... uh, Eagleson uh, trying to buy up Las Vegas newspapers and staff them with his own people. Skipping down. The protracted litigation has illuminated just how Abelson built one of the world's largest fortunes through his casinos in Macau, a Chinese territory rife with corruption where, Jacob's lawsuit alleges, Abelson not only tolerated but sometimes even encouraged illegal and unethical acts. One more time. The protracted litigation has illuminated just how Abelson built one of the world's largest fortunes through his casinos in Macau, a Chinese territory where Jacob's lawsuit alleges Abelson not only tolerated but sometimes even encouraged illegal and unethical acts. One of the uh, bones of contention, by the way, in Macau has been prostitution. It's illegal in China, but the customers of the casinos like it. By the way, 
Casinos are a great way of laundering money. Uh, note Donald Trump. Note, note his primary real estate ventures. Uh, mostly uh, high-end real estate golf courses and uh, drum roll fanfare. Gambling casinos. Great way to launder money. Now, Abelson's money comes primarily from his Macau casinos. Let's take a look at the city of Macau. Turning now to the book Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold by Sterling Seagrave and Peggy Seagrave. Nazi Germany typically laundered looted gold and non-monetary gold by re-snoping it and casting it into bars that were hallmarked with black eagle swastikas numbered in keeping with the standard practice of the Reichsbank. This gold was moved to banks in Switzerland, Sweden, Portugal, or Argentina. Japan used the same techniques, moving gold through Swiss banks in Tokyo, Portuguese banks in Macau, note that please, and banks in Chile and Argentina. When gold was physically moved to those countries, it was carried by large cargo submarines. And again, Portuguese banks in Macau also used by the Nazis. Now, this is fundamental. This is where Abelson's money comes from. As a center of the world's unofficial gold trade, Macau was enriched. When the Allies got together at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 to put a stop to the laundering of Nazi and Japanese war loot through neutral countries, Portugal somehow forgot to include Macau on the list, and nobody drew attention to the oversight. As historian Bertel Lintner, L-I-N-T-N-E-R, noted, quote, Macau merchants were soon buying gold abroad at $35 an ounce from banks, shipping it back to the enclave and selling it at a premium to whoever wanted to buy it. The syndicate was led by Ho Yin, an overseas Chinese who had fled from Guangdong to sit out the war. Macau was a wartime haven for rich overseas Chinese who enlarged their fortunes by precious metal trading. <clears throat> the only significant source of gold at the time was Japanese plunder. In the China Seas, only Japanese banks were open for business. Macau pawn shops, brokers, and private citizens made fortunes turning hard currencies into gold for the Japanese. At war's end, when colonial authorities returned, Macau millionaires were able to use the colonial currency they had acquired to buy the most desirable land, buildings, and factories at knockdown prices. Some of Emperor Hiroshito's personal wealth was laundered through Macau, the rest through Swiss banks. And uh, skipping down, previous CEO Kido called the meeting of Japan's leading bankers in 1943, who were also the emperor's financial advisors. On their recommendation, funds were transferred from, from Tokyo to Switzerland, virtually emptying Hiroshito's cash reserves in Tokyo. Nazi gold, which had been moved to the Swiss accounts of Yokohama Specie Bank to pay for purchases from Japan, also were transferred to Hirohito's or Hiroshito's accounts in Switzerland. At the same time, Kilo moved other imperial gold reserves to Argentina by sub and to Macau, where it was sold for hard currencies, and this money was then moved to Switzerland by bank transfer. Well, ultimately, Macau uh, was turned over to China. It was a Portuguese colony for many years. I think it was in the late 1990s. Now, Portugal is an interesting country. It does not generally get uh, a lot of attention, but uh, we're going to take a look at uh, the 
Uh, an interesting deal about uh, the Spanish Civil War. This is the Spanish Civil War, an overview by Carrie Nelson, M-E-L-S-O-N, from uh, the University of Illinois.edu. The military rebellion took place on July 11th, with the officers who organized it expecting a quick victory and a rapid takeover of the entire country. What the military did not anticipate was the, the determination of the Spanish people, who broke into barracks, took up arms, and crushed the rebellion in key areas like the cities of Madrid and Barcelona. It was at that point that the, that the character of the struggle changed, for the military realized they were not going to win by fiat. Instead, they faced a prolonged struggle against their own people and an uncertain outcome. They appealed to fascist dictatorships in Italy, Germany, and Portugal. Macau is a Portuguese colony, and it was left open as a gold-laundering uh, uh, entity. And that's where Sheldon Abelson's money comes from, from Macau-based casinos. Again, it was turned over to China in the late 1990s, but undoubtedly um, it's still a good way for, to, or, to launder money. One more time. Speaking of the phalanges, the fascists in Spain, they appealed to fascist dictatorships in Italy, Germany, and Portugal for assistance, and they soon began receiving both men and supplies from Benito Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, and Antonio Salazar. Antonio Salazar was the dictator of, Pol- of, uh, Pol- of Portugal. Um, the, from Wikipedia, the entry Estado Novo, and that's the Portuguese fascist uh, party under uh, Antonio Salazar. With fascist organizations being popular and widely supported across many countries like Italian fascism and Nazism, as an antagonist of communist ideologies, Antonio de Oliveira Salazar developed the Estado Novo, which can be described as a right-leaning corporatist regime of parafascist inspiration. And again, this is the country whose colony Macau was, and it was an uh, international gold laundering center, and uh, Macau-based casinos are the source of Sheldon Abelson's wealth, and Sheldon Abelson is uh, the driving was the driving financial force behind Netanyahu, and also to a, to a considerable extent, the Republican Party of the U.S. Continuing, the Estado Novo was an authoritarian regime of an integralist orientation, which differed greatly from other fascist regimes by its lack of expansionism, lack of a fanatical leader, lack of dogmatic party structure, and more moderate use of state force. It incorporated, however, the principles for its military from Benito Mussolini's system in Italy. Salazar was a Catholic traditionalist who believed in the necessity of control over the forces of economic modernization in order to defend the religious and rural values of the country, which he perceived as being threatened. One of the pillars of the regime was the PIDE, the secret police. Many political dissidents were imprisoned at the Terrafal prison in the African archipelago of Cape Verde, on the capital island of Santiago, or in local jails. Strict State censorship was in place. The Estado Novo accepted the idea of corporatism as an economic model. Although Salazar refused to sign the anti-common term pact in 1938, the Portuguese Communist Party was intensely persecuted. So were anarchists, liberals, republicans, and anyone who opposed the regime. The National Union embraced a wide array of right-wing politics, passing through monarchism, corporatism, parafascism, nationalism, and capitalism. 
The Legião Nacional, and I'll probably butcher these Portuguese pronunciations, was a popular militia similar to the Italian Blackshirts. For young people, there was the Mosibabe Portuguesa, an organization similar in organization but not in ideology to the Hitler Youth. These two organizations were heavily supported by the state and imposed a martial style of life. Basically, Portugal was a fascist country for many years after World War II. And again, Macau, an international gold-laundering center, uh, is the epicenter for the casinos that provided Sheldon Abelson with his money. And again, gambling casinos are a great way to launder money. Great, the, the high-end real estate is another great way to do that as well. But again, you know, you'll never hear about that anymore. You'll never hear about the, the Scorzami <coughs> shock mission to uh, uh, Egypt and uh, his, the Scorzami association with Yasser Arafat. Uh, it, it, it just... I, I believe in what I'm doing. At the same time, you know, one, one must be realistic. And uh, again, the whole subject of the Israeli-Palestinian thing, you just become a human piñata for a bunch of... Uh, uh, venal know-nothings, frankly. People who say, they may not know nothing, but they're not interested in learning more. Now, uh, one of the things to note in that, uh, uh, in that, uh, previous, some of the previous presentation, and that was the concentration of wealth that is taking place in Israel. Uh, uh Paul Krugman noted that, uh, very interestingly, in the run-up to the September 11th attacks, there, uh, September, here we go, uh, the October 7th attacks, there was massive shorting of the Israeli stock market. That also happened in the U.S. in the run-up to the September 11th attacks. It also happened in the U.S. on November 22nd, 1963. Turning now to the Moon of Alabama blog of December 4th of 2023, right before Hamas attacked, someone shorted Israeli stocks and funds. The Israeli Haaretz headlines, Did Hamas Make Billions Betting Against Israeli Shares Before October 7th Massacre? Giant Gambles Against Israel on the Markets in Tel Aviv and Wall Street Days Before Hamas's Attack Made Billions. Somebody seems to have known about the plan in advance. We know that Batridge's Law of Headlines, it's B-A-T-T-E-R-I-D-G-E apostrophe S, Law of Headlines says, any headline that ends in a question mark can be answered by the word no. It was thereby not Hamas which profited from unusual short positions, but likely someone else. The Haaretz story is based on a very recent study by two law professors with experience in market regulations from New York University and Columbia University. A PDF file of the study, Trading on Terror, is available at the Haaretz site. Its abstract says, Recent scholarship shows that informed traders increasingly disguise trades in economically linked securities such as exchange-traded funds or ETFs. Linking that work to long-standing literature on financial markets' reactions to military conflict, we document a significant spike in short-selling on the principal Israeli company ETF days before the October 7th Hamas attack. The short-selling that day far exceeded the short-selling that occurred during numerous other periods of crisis, including the recession following the financial crisis, the 2014 Israel-Gaza war, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Similarly, we identify increases in short selling before the attack in dozens of Israel companies, Israeli companies traded in Tel Aviv. 
for one Israeli company alone. 4.43 million new shares sold short over the September 14th to October 5th trading period, yielding profits or approximate avoided losses of 3.2 billion MIS on that additional short selling. Although we see no aggregate increase in shorting of Israeli companies on U.S. exchanges, we do identify a sharp and unusual increase just before the attacks in trading on risky, short-dated options on these companies expiring just after the attacks. We identify similar patterns in the Israeli ETF at times when it was reported that Hamas was planning to execute a similar attack as in October. Our findings suggest that traders informed about the coming attacks profited from these tragic events, and consistent with prior literature, we show that trading of this kind occurs in gaps in U.S. and international enforcement of legal prohibitions on informed trading. We contribute to the growing literature on trading related to geopolitical events and offer suggestions for policymakers concerned about profitable trading on the basis of information about coming military conflict. 3.2 billion new Israeli shekels are about $800 plus million. And as I understand it, those were only the profits from a small part of the whole operation. And uh, this is the uh, the memory of the uh, Moon of Alabama blog. I am not qualified sufficiently to judge the study, but the quoted sources on and data seem reasonable. EIS is an exchange-traded fund that tracks Israeli shares in New York. The spike in shorts volumes of EIS was indeed hefty. The short options were only for a very limited period. At least some would have expired on October 13th. So it definitely looks as if on Monday, October second, someone was sure enough on that was sure enough that say it. So it definitely looks as if on Monday, October second, someone was sure enough that something bad would happen to Israel, that someone had enough market knowledge and money to take the risk of a false alarm in exchange for a huge potential profit. Who that person or group was is for anyone to guess. Well, again. Who knows? Uh, who knows about that group of 20 families who pretty much control Israel? How many of them are Mormon Jews or just Jewish fascists? Well, again, no, we don't know. But, again, you never hear about uh, the Mormon Jews any more than you're going to hear about uh, Hajamim al-Hussein, the first leader of the Palestinian national movement, being a uh, major general in the Waffen SS or the close relationship between Abbas Khorzemi and Yasser Arafat. Uh, According to some accounts, Arafat was actually a distant blood relative of the Grand Mufti. And there's just so many things one never hears about. Uh, Ever heard of the Treaty of San Remo of 1920? No, I didn't think you would. Uh, It's never been repealed. You never hear about it. Uh, Actually, the Israeli settlements... um, on the West Bank are not technically illegal under international law. The Treaty of San Remo basically gave the green light, at least to a point. I don't know how far that, you, know, you never hear about it. Uh, they may have moved well beyond that. Certainly, what is happening now on the West Bank, uh, in my opinion, is not fundamentally different uh, from the uh, Aryanization of Jewish property by the Nazis in World War II. It's one of the grotesque uh, aspects of this entire situation. But again, trying to 
censor criticism of Israel or, you know, shut down students who are uh, sympathetic to Palestine uh, or the Palestinian cause. That is not going to work to benefit Israel. It is not going to work to benefit Jews. It is going to work to against Israel, and it's going to work to create anti-Semitism. Uh, it is a very ill-considered policy, and it is not going to uh, be good at all. Again, it remains to be seen what uh, actually takes place. I <clears throat> can't see how this ends well. And again, it just never occurs to either side to take a good look at the fact that the profound fascist elements on both sides, that were deeply involved with both sides, have spent more time uh, over the, <clears throat> the decades talking about uh, Palestinian and Arab fascism, have also, uh, however, had quite a few programs and posts about uh, the fascist elements in the Zionist movement, and ultimately I think they uh, have prevailed, they have taken over. But again, one doesn't hear about it. And you never hear on the other side about the ethnic cleansing of Jews, as I've said, from Arab countries. It took place over decades, but it was half again the number of Palestinians who were ethnically cleansed by Israel. And again, some of them, a lot of them settled in Israel, and they are right-wing as hell. One of the uh, a, a woman of Jewish extraction, I don't know if she still practices the faith, but uh, Sibel Edmonds, no, not Sabelle Edmonds, but Rita Katz, rather, of Anonymous, who uh, did some great work on the 9-11 money trail. Uh, her family were Iraqi Jews, and they were uh, violently purged from Iraq. And many uh, uh, Jews from those Middle Eastern countries, Arab countries, were ethnically cleansed. And man, a lot of them are really bitter. They hate Arabs, and a lot they have their property confiscated, too, so they don't have a lot of dough. But again, when you have an argument when both sides are wrong, in the sense there are deep flaws in both sides, and it never occurs to either side that they might be wrong, and forget it. It's just um, uh, talking about this subject is just an absolutely thankless thing. And after when I conclude this program in just a few minutes, uh, I ain't going to do that anymore. Again, I believe in what I'm doing. Uh, but, you know, I'm not a saint and I'm not a minor deity and just putting oneself out there. If I got paid for this, what the hell, you know, I mean, people say or do anything they want, but as long as the meter's running, I'll just wait and then when it's time to clock out, you know, collect my dough and off I go. But I don't get paid for this. And frankly, to, uh, again, be a human piñata for the uh, less knowledgeable people on both sides, uh, it's simply an exercise in masochism, and I have no intention of continuing to do this. It's just, uh, you know, that is to say talking about this. So, uh, uh, I am not going to do it. Uh, nonetheless, what is going on there is a horror show. An absolute horror show. And, again, it doesn't matter. You know, they can, you know, kick out all the university, uh, presidents, or censor all the students, or whatever, or file lawsuits. What's going on in Gaza, the footage coming out of Gaza is going to work against Israel. It is going to work against Jews. And uh, again, it is a beautiful, a beautiful element of political rehabilitation for Adolf Hitler because people are going to say, well, you know, of course Hitler went too far, but you know, he was just trying to save Germany from the Jews. And, uh, you know, look at what the Jews have become. And one of the, the many tragedies of Israel uh, is that, you know, is Many Israelis are relatively secular. Uh, 
attending attendance of houses of worship is lower in Israel on a regular basis than it is in the U.S. Uh, there was a significant element, too, in the original founding contingent, so to speak, of uh, Zionism, who were socialists, and they saw... Uh, a socialist Zionist paradise for both uh, Israelis and Arabs. I've seen uh, watercolor sketches or paintings, and it it looks ludicrous at this point in time. But you've got the smiling Israeli socialist Zionists and their mobbers fatigues, and the smiling Arabs in their caftans in the wall, living happily ever after in their socialist Zionist paradise. Uh, that element has become completely submerged. Uh, I mentioned in the first part of this program, that uh, there were three clans. The Ottoman Empire had clans that were the dominant elements in parts of that empire. And in that part of what had been the Ottoman Empire became part of the British Empire. The dominant elements, dominant clans were the Nafishibi, the Hashemite, and the Husseini. Only the Husseini clan had influence in all of the high holy places of, of Islam, Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. Uh, the others did not. The Nafishibi, for example, were in favor of having the Zionists, uh, Jews, emigrate to uh, Palestine, Israel, whatever the hell you want to call it, um, because they felt it would benefit the Arabs to have the uh, advanced technical and educational skills of the Jews to uh, uh, draw upon. Of course, the Nafishibi did not get control of uh British-controlled Palestine, and they wouldn't have since they favored Jewish immigration to Palestine. But you never hear about that either. So, uh, once again, uh, please do visit the SpitfireList.com website on a regular basis for the brilliant comments made by Parafractal and other brilliant listeners. He's our contributing editor. Also, the 32, latest 32 gigabyte flash drive, current through for the record 1310, having all of my life's work on coronavirus on it, very important work, is now available. Uh, it also has a small mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy to download PDF files. And again, I make no money whatsoever from this. It's my entire life's work, but for the better part of half a century, I get no money whatsoever from that. And also, be aware that at the top of each written for the record description and each food for thought post, there is a link that will enable you to subscribe to the podcast that station WFMU is making of for the record. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, WFMU is making that available. So, uh, that is that, uh, uh, and please do uh, take advantage of the flash drive. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Uh, I am extremely, I've been getting more pessimistic all the time. I don't see how the hell the thing in, in the Middle East is going to be satisfactorily resolved. Uh, but if, if that bloodshed doesn't stop, it's going to be the end of the world. And there has to be a Palestinian homeland, regardless of whether Netanyahu wants one or doesn't want one or not. If not, it's going to be the end of the world. And this is the end of For the Record Program number 1317, Fireside Rant about the Gaza War and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, Part 2. This is being recorded on December 22nd of the year 2023. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.